I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. When people hear murder, they usually think of a gun, knife, strangulation. But what if the murder weapon is a combination of choices, actions, and a vehicle? Every day, an average of 102 lives are lost to car crashes in the U.S., 27 of which are due to an impaired driver. That breaks down to about one death every 14 minutes. But car accidents are just that, right? Accidents. But what if what caused the accident was avoidable? What if political connections led to an alleged murderer being released? Would those still be considered accidents? Today, I'll be telling the story of Stacey Morrow, Ryan Sorensen, and Brandon Clements, and how their murderer went from being a neglectful driver to being on the U.S. Marshals' most wanted list. For the last decade, the average amount of annual deaths caused by drunk driving sits around 10,000. 10,000 people died due to something totally preventable. I'm reminded daily of drunk drivers. I've almost lost my dad to one. He and I were hit by one when I was 13, and I was T-boned by one in 2014, totaling my car. So when my shoulder pops weird or I sleep wrong and wake up with a migraine, I'm reminded of those drunk drivers. And I often wonder if they're ever reminded of me or if that's just part of the beauty of being a drunk driver. You don't have to remember. My injuries are totally minor things, and I think a lot of people deal with things like that daily. I know, Em, you have a neck issue. He wasn't drunk, but he rear-ended me. Yeah, so still, the the long-term effects of neglectful driving. Now, imagine the ripple effect of those 10,000 lives. Those are the lives of the drivers, the lives of pedestrians, the lives of friends, family. Those 10,000 lives lost have a ripple effect I can't even begin to grasp. Besides my personal trauma with drunk drivers, I'm also reminded of them frequently when I drive east on the I-84. I see the sign near exit 16 dedicated to two police officers that lost their lives. I learned about that accident in high school. Mr. Whitehead was a teacher, not mine of course, he taught the smart kids, but he did meet with every student before they graduated. It was always around prom time, an event that leads to a lot of drunk driving accidents. While people like myself were part of groups like SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions, and did things to warn our peers about the dangers of mixing alcohol with driving, it was Mr. Whitehead that had a bigger impact than any of us kids could. The first year I saw his presentation, I was a junior. He came to my criminal justice class. He was older then, but at 17, everyone seems old. So he was maybe in his late 50s. He always had a frail-looking build, not weak-looking, just really skinny and tall. He had gray and blonde hair and glasses. Whenever I interacted with him, he did seem pretty quiet and somber, but I didn't spend too much time with him. And this day, those feelings of him feeling somber were even stronger. Without any introduction, in an attempt to lessen the feelings we were about to experience, Mr. Whitehead started to walk us through the life of his son. Using the projector, he shared slides of his son, Mark Whitehead. As Mr. Whitehead clicked through the photos of Mark as a child, the dark classroom full of high schoolers stayed nearly silent. In that moment, Mr. Whitehead went from a teacher to a father. And even though he had shared his story for nearly 10 years by the time I heard it, you could still see the hurt in his eyes. 
starting with childhood pictures around the Christmas tree and playing with a family dog and outdoor adventures, Mr. Whitehead told us how Mark was 23 years old. He had graduated from the same building we were sitting in only back in 1985. And in 1993, he was a successful clarinetist, even playing with the Portland Youth Philharmonic. He was attending Portland State University and was only six months shy of earning a master's degree in music. And for the last year or so, he had been part of the Multnomah County Sheriff's Reserve Program. Unlike the juniors program I was a part of back in the day where we learned some rules and did security at events, the reserves are like backup policemen. They can go on patrols, after being vetted and hired, of course, and help to fill the gaps. Mark was on such a patrol in 1993. He and Reserve Sergeant Scott Collins had just dropped off a prisoner at the downtown police station and were headed back to the Wood Village Sheriff Station, eastbound on I-84. It was February 26, 1993. It was evening time, and it was dark. The men continued east until about 207th, and they had no idea what was coming their way via the westbound lanes. In the other lane was 50-year-old Aaron Vandervoot, Only six months earlier, Aaron had been given his license back after it had been suspended for drunk driving. With a blood alcohol content of .15, nearly double the legal limit, he lost control of his vehicle. Traveling somewhere between 90 and 104 miles an hour, Aaron caught the median, and back then they didn't have cement blocks like they do now. They only had grassy strips separating the lanes. Hitting the median sent Aaron's car into the air and across the highway. The bottom of his car, removing the top of the patrol car, Scott and Mark happened to be driving in in the left lane at that exact second. This was when Mr. Whitehead's speech changed. It went from sharing fond memories to sharing facts. He started to click through the photos from the crime scene. That was when we learned that the top of the car wasn't the only thing affected. The accident nearly decapitated both men instantaneously. I know I have a terrible memory, but there are some things you just don't forget. One for me was seeing a picture on the wall of a police car with blood and pieces of human everywhere. Mr. Whitehead stopped and pointed to a piece on the car and said, that's my son's skull. Seeing a grown man stand in front of a group of students and point to his son's dead body, it seemed like he had a secret strength that I could not comprehend. Aaron, the drunk driver, also died on impact. While he made a choice that cost the lives of two men and his own, it doesn't mean he was necessarily a bad man, but he certainly didn't leave a lot of choice for his family and friends who are now left mourning someone whom they couldn't even celebrate the life of because of the decision he made at the end of it. Sergeant Scott Collins was almost 10 years older than Mark, graduating from Gresham High in 1977 before going to Mount Hood Community College. At the time of his death, he had been a reserve deputy for nearly six years and had applied to join the Portland Police Force. 21 years after the accident, the men were given a memorial plaque on the side of I-84, right by the location of the accident. And 21 years after I first saw Mr. Whitehead's presentation, well, I still don't drink and can hardly stand to hear the song Tears in Heaven as he would end his presentation with a slideshow of Mark's life, that song playing as the soundtrack. The simple decision of changing lanes while under the influence in the summer of 2001 turned into a nightmare for over a dozen families, a nightmare that dragged on to a manhunt and a court case for over six years with pain that is still felt to this day by all of those involved. Looking at a map of Washington, you wouldn't think there would be a big college scene in the eastern part of the state headed towards Idaho. 
But if you dragged that map all the way east and zoomed in real close, you'd find the city of Pullman, Washington, home of Washington State University. And a 12-minute drive away in Moscow, Idaho, the University of Idaho. Connecting the two college towns is a stretch of highway known as the 270. There isn't much to see on that road, typical eastern Pacific Northwest, rolling hills full of farmland. You would easily miss the WSU campus if it weren't for the single streetlight as a sign of life. Attending Washington State were friends Brandon Clements, Stacy Morrow, and Stacy's boyfriend, Ryan Sorensen. They, along with their friends Kara Eichels Doerfer, John Wagner, Samir Rande, and Eric Haynes, were all riding together in Brandon's car. Being college kids in their early 20s, they were out on that June 4th night causing some real havoc and were now on their way home after crossing the state lines to go see Shrek, which had come out just a few weeks prior. Those crazy kids. I know. At approximately 10.45 p.m., Brandon Clements was driving his Cadillac, a boxy 1978 sedan, westbound on Highway 270. Seated in the back seat on the driver's side was Stacy Morrow and Ryan Sorensen. The other four spread out on the passenger's side. While the 12-minute drive from Moscow back to Pullman isn't necessarily windy, there are some blind curves and hills throughout. Nowadays, Highway 270 is a five-lane road, but back in 2001, it was only a two-lane road, a road that at times was marked with non-passing lines. Those lines didn't matter to Fred Russell, also a WSU student, so when he was stuck behind a slow driver while headed east on 270, he didn't wait for a break in the yellows. He pulled into the left westbound lane, and at 90 miles an hour, he started to pass the slower car. Driving his Chevy Blazer at speeds far above the 55 to 65 mile an hour highway, Fred pulled into the westbound lane, his headlights shining into the windows of a geo prism for only a second before colliding. That hit took out the driver's side front fender and sent the geo into a ditch on the side of the road. But Fred didn't stop there. After taking out the geo, the Blazer struck Brandon's Cadillac, throwing it off the road. It finally landed in a ditch jammed between the shoulder and a hill. One officer described the car as an accordion, and in his years of working car crashes, had only seen cars the size of Brandon's in the condition it was in if there was a train or semi-truck involved. The news footage on Unsolved Mysteries, Season 12, Episode 5, shows just how many pieces of metal were strewn about. A pair of sneakers ominously sits in front of the car. When you see the Cadillac from the driver's side, you can hardly tell what you're looking at. The tires are blown out, the hood is up, the back fender is gone, the entire engine is exposed. The roof is so scrunched up it comes to a point, and the trunk just dangles in the air. The steering wheel was almost folded in half, and the seats were all just kind of pushed into one. Looking at the photo, it is not surprising that the three WSU students, Brandon Clements, Stacy Morrow, and Ryan Sorensen, died at the scene. Surviving was Matt Wagner, and he stated he was actually in a good position, if you can have one in this kind of scenario. He was on the passenger side, and when the car stopped, he was wedged between the hill and the crumpled car. He could tell right away his friends were gone. There was carnage everywhere. Seeing their bodies thrown around from the position they had been in, he knew there was nothing he could do. So being pinned actually kept him from further trauma of trying to help his already perished friends. Kara, who had been in the passenger's side, suffered a punctured lung, a bruised heart, three broken ribs, a broken bone in her back, and her pelvis was shattered in three places. But that wasn't the end of the destruction. 
Somehow, even after the impact with the Geo and Cadillac, Fred and his Blazer were still on the move. He then crashed into yet another vehicle. That final impact resulted in his SUV bursting into flames. There are some interesting things that happen regarding drunk drivers. I know this from firsthand experience and from research. One interesting tidbit is in regards to how, like in this case, there are times that people who drink and drive and get into horrible accidents are able to just walk away from it unscathed. An example of this would be Fred and his friend and passenger that night, Jacob McFarlane. They both exited the burning car with hardly a scratch on them. That's because a drunk body is a loose body. So while a sober person may see an accident about to happen and tense up, leading to more internal injuries, a drunk person kind of can't tense up, so their bodies are thrown around, allowing for less internal injuries. Another not-so-fun fact is something called gravitational attraction. I looked into this a lot when presenting a case to Allstate. When I was hit by one of my drunk drivers, there was literally no one else on the road for miles, yet she pulled right out when I passed her. It's kind of like those videos on America's Funniest Videos, or I guess the internet now because I'm old. Anyway, those videos of kids that are on a bike or skateboard and they're going down the street and for some reason it's like they're magnetically pulled straight into the mailbox, it's kind of that same idea. There's an object, therefore it's creating its own tiny gravitational pull. And when someone is drunk, they can be more pulled to it than a sober person. With that combination, Fred was able to step out of his fiery car and walk away from the four-car pileup he had created. Taken to the hospital, it took two hours to get his blood drawn, but even all that time later, he still had a blood alcohol content of 0.12, far above the 0.08 legal limit. Do we know what that would have been then? Like what it would have been two hours prior? Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure because I know it's all about like each person's metabolism. And and, your weight. Yeah, so... I would assume it would have been higher. I don't know how significantly higher. I wonder if there's a range that it would have been. Yeah, or like a calculator. Soon after the deaths of Brandon, Stacy, and Ryan, Fred was arrested and charged with multiple counts, including three counts of vehicular homicide. It should be mentioned that Fred was attending WSU, majoring in criminal justice. Oh, the irony. But that's not all. It's possible he wasn't so much interested in wanting to work in criminal justice, but more so that he had connections. You see, Fred's father was the dean of criminal justice at WSU. So when his son was arrested and had bail set at a measly $5,000, his daddy had no problem coughing up the cash. If that number, five grand, seems low to you, that's because it is. For example, just last August, a 50-year-old man in Kent, Washington, was charged with vehicular homicide after driving drunk and killing a man. Following Fred's footsteps nearly exactly, the man went to pass the car in front of him, but did it at a speed which caused his truck to roll over onto another car in the opposite lane. His bail? $100,000. Yes, there was a 20-year difference between the charges, but time didn't have as much to do with it as connections. Outrage in the community started to grow as people felt the bail was low because his dad and the judge were pals, not because he wasn't a threat or flight risk. The friends who barely survived the wreck and the parents left without their children were appalled that the lives of their loved ones were valued so low. Fred was released and allowed to stay home until his trial date. The court didn't even revoke his license, so he continued to drive to work. On August 20th, Fred was back in court and pleaded not guilty. 
Greg Russell, Fred's dad, is a real piece of work. You should go watch this episode of Unsolved Mysteries if you feel like yelling at your television. It's clear he loved and wanted to protect his son, but to watch someone who is supposed to be dedicated to bringing justice to criminals lie through his teeth, it was just excruciating. Daddy Dean also mentions that he saw a report, a report no parent mentions when interviewed or that I could find online, stating that Brandon and his friends had a toxicology report that showed they were all on meth, alcohol, and weed. However, the prosecutor of the case totally disputes that there were any contributing factors. With three promising college students' lives cut short, more left with lifelong physical and emotional wounds, and a town wanting justice for those losses, it was understandable that there were frustrations surrounding the handling of Fred. Unsurprising, this led to reported death threats. According to the prosecution, Fred reported he had received two phone calls and a note. Instead of reaching out to the legal teams to report what was happening so he could get help, maybe even to be put into a safe house, he just reported that he was scared. So Fred took things into his own hands, literally. He grabbed his personal items and walked out the door after selling some baseball cards and taking $1,500 out of his father's account. By October 26th, a new warrant was out for Fred. He had missed a pretrial hearing. Shortly after his elopement, envelopes arrived at multiple Washington newspapers with postage marked from Reno, Nevada. They were letters and they were from Fred. He explained that ever since the night of the accident, he had been getting threats and he was being treated unfairly, so he had no option but to leave town and not face his responsibilities. Filled with me statements and no hint of remorse or apology, the letter is hard to read and hard to take seriously. Those letters proclaiming his innocence were the last time Fred was reportedly heard from. Even Fred's dad, when talking about his son being missing, is eerily calm while being interviewed. Your son is missing, his whereabouts are totally unknown, and you're going to calmly say, I haven't heard from him, and my friends haven't either. I hope they would tell me if they did. Right. By November of 2001, the FBI was involved and they had some leads. First, it was said that Fred had implied to his mother that he would be headed to Costa Rica, perhaps even Central America. His money said otherwise as the FBI was able to track him to Moscow, where he had purchased warm clothing. That purchase was in October of that year. When the FBI tracked down the clerk that had sold Fred the clothing, he reported that Fred claimed he would need the warm waterproof gloves because, quote, his hands were going to be wet a lot. But Russia is a big place. Wet hands? Could Fred have gone on a fishing boat? And how do you even possibly start to search the sea? And then a slow, painful nothing. Months turned into years, and there was still no substantial lead. Fred could have been anywhere in the world. There was still interest in the case, of course. It ended up being featured on America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. It took two years, but there was finally a big break in the hunt for Fred in October of 2003. While police interviewed Greg, his father, he finally opened up about some important information. First, he confessed he had lied and had in fact been contacted by his son on two separate occasions. Then the biggie, the one that answered the question, how did he even get out of the country in the first place? According to Greg, during one of those phone calls with his son, he admitted to getting a ride across the border into Canada. The person that drove him? A woman by the name of Bernadette Faith Olson. Bernadette was a family friend who had stopped by Fred's house on October 23, 2001. When she arrived, there was nothing suspicious about Fred's behavior. No bags were packed. 
She claims to have not thought anything of it when they started to go for a drive. But then, even though she told authorities there had not been a plan in place, the two of them set off on a drive across the border. No, not the Idaho border a few miles away, the Canadian border. And after nearly nine hours of driving northeast, the pair ended up at the Calgary airport in Alberta, Canada. From there, Fred was able to book and take a flight. So how did Bernadette know Fred? Well, she had just graduated from WSU with a degree in criminal justice because she had been a student of Greg Russell's. Greg's former student had taken his son into Canada, where he escaped, and for two years neither Greg nor Bernadette told authorities. Conveniently, when interviewed about that time, Greg had receipts to show he had been staying at a hotel in Portland. Once officers learned of the escape, they focused their search on Canada. For Bernadette, unlike the fugitive she had assisted, she was willing to face responsibility for her actions. Now a professor in Florida, she was put on leave once indicted by a federal grand jury. Pleading guilty in 2004 for giving false information to federal agents, Bernadette was sentenced to six months in federal prison and three years of supervised release. Far more time served than the man who had killed three people and was on the run. Whatever charms Fred had seemed to work in his favor often. Not only did he get Bernadette to drive him, he had another friend break the law on his behalf, too. The person is unnamed, but there was witness tampering accusations brought after it was discovered that someone had been talking to the bartender that had been serving Fred the night of the accident, and they were harassing him to try to get him to change his account of having served Fred two Guinness beers. More time passed. Sure, there were tips, sightings of Fred even, but nothing panned out. Then, in January 2005, at the request of Washington Marshal Mike Klein, the U.S. Marshals did something unprecedented. Because of Fred's ability to evade capture and having a history of being connected to drug dealers and dangerous ones at that, Frederick David Russell was placed on the U.S. Marshals' 15 most wanted list, a first for a drunk driver. We hear most wanted lists often, but what does that really mean? Besides being placed on the top of the stack, leading to more exposure, additionally it means the marshals have access to more funding for a reward, and there's a team of officers that work specifically to find the top 15. So more resources, more money, and more opportunity to catch this guy. A poster adorned with Fred's photo and description, 6 foot 1, 215 pounds, green eyes, red hair, two tattoos, a Celtic cross on his arm and a shamrock on his back, along with the headline of Armed and Dangerous, was released. You'd think investigators would look at his photo, read about his tattoos, and take a guess as to where he would have gone that he could have just blended right in. <laughs> but alas, that wasn't the case. This was in the early 2000s. The internet was still in its infancy, but had come a long way. So when the poster of Fred was released by the U.S. Marshals, it wasn't just a paper one you hung in a window. It was also posted on their website. And in Dublin, there just so happened to be a young man that, as a hobby I think all of us can relate to, would scroll through most wanted lists. Mm -hmm. He's after our own heart. <laughs> exactly. That's when a man by the name of David Carroll was reported to authorities. He was tall, had red hair, and of all things was working security at a clothing boutique. The marshals forwarded the information to the Irish police, who then took over the investigation in Ireland. 
Scared that if David was actually Fred and he realized he was busted, he might run again, they kept their distance. From afar, they would take photos and surveillance of David Carroll and send it to the U.S. Marshals. Police were keeping their expectations low. There had already been incidents where they were sure they had the guy because he looked so remarkably similar to Fred, only to find out it was simply a case of mistaken identity. Before they could really pursue him as a suspect, they needed more than photos. To gather the evidence they needed, investigators had a female agent go into the boutique where she found the man named David. While holding out a plastic CD case, she asked him to write down directions for her. Investigators were then able to get fingerprints off the case, confirming that David Carroll was, in fact, Frederick Russell. Wow. I know. That's good sleuthing right there. It really is. And he probably thought, oh, I've gotten away with this so long I don't need to be careful. Oh, yeah. Not even crossing his mind. Now, children, a CD case. (laughs) (laughs) It's a container where you kept your music. It held your music. You had to make a trick of how you opened it. And also it was used for scraping snow off your windshield. <laughs> that is true. It was a I good de-icer. In my car. It was the best de-icer. Oh, that's funny. But an arrest still wasn't made. David went on with his life, working and unaware he had been busted for nine months. During that time, authorities worked to gather all the evidence to get the proper paperwork so the arrest could be made. Then came October 23, 2005. Walking into his place of work, Sergeant Tony Linehan approached David and said, I think you're someone else, before asking him to remove his shirt so he could see his tattoos. But David refused, not because he was being defiant, but for once he was admitting his guilt. He was, in fact, Fred Russell. Keeping up his douchey, spoiled man-baby persona while being arrested, Fred told the sergeant, Please don't treat me like a scumbag. I'm not a scumbag. I'm just somebody who was involved in a traffic accident. Finally in custody, the families affected by the crash anxiously awaited Fred's return to the U.S. While there are dozens of countries without extradition treaties with the U.S., Ireland isn't one of them. However, they are known to not extradite quickly, if at all. Ireland rightfully takes issues with human rights violations and capital punishment in the United States. For those reasons, they hadn't extradited a prisoner back to the United States in six years by the time Fred's case came around. Gee, I wonder if someone in his family knew how Ireland was about extradition. I wonder if that same family member assisted in getting Fred a dream legal team that fought and fought his case, eventually even getting it to the Irish Supreme Court. Not only did Fred have his legal team, unlike in the States, he had support from the community. David Carroll was a charmer and had built a life for himself in Ireland. When he confessed to his friends that he had been in some legal trouble back home, they all had his back, unaware of the anguish he was causing so many families in the States. One of those supporters was a woman named Hazel. She was an office manager outside Dublin. When she and David met, they fell in love. Before they knew it, they had moved in together and were planning on getting married. But given his history, was he really in love with her or was she just another pawn being used to help him stay out of an American prison? Fiancé, friends, lawyers, none of that mattered when, a year after he was caught, the extradition request was finally granted. David was gone, and Fred was coming home to face the consequences. When it came time for the trial, Greg, Fred's father, wasn't around, but Fred's mother was. The lack of compassion Fred had shown was exhibited by his mother when she was overheard saying, This is the most horrendous thing that I've ever been through. 
That might have been true, but when Karen Overacker, Brandon's mother, overheard that statement, she shot a look at her across the room. Not saying, but thinking, you think this is bad, you should see what your son's actions did to my son's body. The trial, which had been moved to Kelso, Washington, to give Fred an unbiased jury, painted a picture of exactly what happened that horrible June night. At 4 p.m. on June 4th, a liquor store manager testified that Fred came into his store and purchased a half gallon of Monarch vodka. Fred then took the liquor to a house party. Witnesses testified that Fred and five others shared the bottle, using it in blended drinks. That was all before he and his friend Jacob ended up at a tavern where they had two Guinnesses each. By the time the two men had left the bar, Fred had been drinking for approximately six hours. At 10.40 p.m., Robert Hart was driving on a blind hill on Highway 270 when he saw headlights in his mirrors. Driving about 55 miles an hour, Robert estimated the car that was pulling up on him, a Chevy Blazer, was going about 90. In that moment, Fred decided to go over the solid line on the dark road and ended up approximately three and a half feet over the center line. Melanie Tratnik was driving on that road in her Geo when she saw the headlights. Within seconds, she was struck. Then the rogue vehicle took out the Cadillac behind her, killing Brandon, Stacy, and Ryan. As for the four survivors from the Cadillac, one was Eric Haynes. Of the survivors, he's the only one that has any memory of that night. While testifying, he was emotional, sharing how he could see his friends, and he knew they were dead. Once in the hospital, Fred smelled of alcohol, was slurring his speech, and had watery eyes. He claimed to have consumed a beer and a half. While all of that sounds like a pretty clear conviction, the defense fought back hard. When questioned, the bartender pointed out that Fred didn't seem that intoxicated. He felt that way because Fred had actually pointed out a mistake on the tab. But this was also the bartender that had been intimidated about changing his story, so there's no telling what the truth is. Just like their client, the defense tried to blame Robert Hart, the driver in front of Fred, the defense saying that he was driving erratically, that he changed his statement to the police, and that he didn't stay very long at the scene. Then there was the running. Like the old saying, innocent people don't run, Fred claimed he wasn't trying to get away with anything. He was just scared for his life and the lives of his family members. There were, of course, mistakes made in the investigation that only served to improve the defense's argument. One was that a Washington state trooper took Fred's blood sample, but the accident happened at the border, and it should have been an Idahoan officer. And that blood? By the time they finally got to trial, it had been lost, thrown away after being compromised. That meant not only was the defense denied independent testing, but the extradition probably wouldn't have been approved if the police had been transparent about the destroyed evidence. Frederick Russell spoke with Keith Morrison of Dateline about his side of the story since he didn't take the stand at the trial. The house party that evening, he didn't have a sip of alcohol. The vodka had been purchased as a gift. He doesn't even like vodka, even though he was known in the community as a stereotypical heavy-drinking college-aged kid. The blood tests were botched and wrong. He knows he wasn't drunk. As for the passing of the car, that wasn't what he was doing. What he claimed to have actually happened was that he was driving around a blind corner and a car that had been stopped on the side of the road pulled out right in front of him, so he swerved into the other lane to avoid it. By the time the car started to come at him from the other lane, he had lost control of his car and the crash ensued. 
When talking about fleeing, Fred explained it was to protect himself and his mother, that he didn't regret it because it made sense at the time. As for his father Greg assisting him, Fred claims his dad, if he had known of the plan to run, would have told him not to. And ending up in Ireland with a tough extradition process was, much like the shamrock tattooed on his back, nothing but a strike of luck. But his luck had finally run out. Frederick Russell was found guilty of three counts of vehicular homicide. At the sentencing a month and a half later, some survivors and family members of victims spoke out. Stacy's father, Rich Morrow, said, I would hope at some point Mr. Russell stops thinking about how to save his skin and starts thinking about how to save his soul. Kara, one of the survivors from the Cadillac, I don't like to have pictures taken of me anymore due to my scars. I'm getting married next summer, and pictures are one thing that is hard. I want to have pictures to remember this great event, but because of Mr. Russell's actions, I don't want to see myself later on this joyous day. Matt Wagner, another survivor, asked Fred to just say, I'm sorry, you guys, I screwed up. Accept responsibility and just let us go on with our lives. Then a call came into the court. It was Fred's Irish girlfriend, Hazel. She said, I can barely get through each day, but I hold on to the thought that hopefully one day we can rebuild our life together. She's just another person whose life was uprooted and destroyed by Fred's selfish actions. Finally, the families affected by Fred got to hear his voice. He held a rosary when he turned to the families and survivors, apologizing. Not for the killing, of course, but for running, making it take so long to get to the trial. He said, Matthew, I'm sorry. You waited too long to hear that. I'm sorry for what happened to you. Mr. Morrow, all of you, I'm not going to stand up here and expect forgiveness. I don't have the right to ask you for understanding. I'm grateful to be able to be speaking with you. I mean it. I'd gladly swap places with them, but that wouldn't change anything. I hate that. When people are trying to apologize or give statements to the families and they say, I would trade if I could. That is the most meaningless. I know. Just leave that out of it. First of all. Have someone review your speech. <laughs> Apologies at that point mean nothing. It's more about accepting what you've done and getting punishment for it. Yeah. That's what people want. Yeah. Some some people may be more forgiving than, than others. That's but. true. But yeah, the, I'd, I'd gladly swap. Boo. Fred then apologized for the delay because his running away is what made them have to wait. But if you were really sorry for that, would you have fought extradition for over a year? So why didn't Fred take responsibility for the deaths he caused? He claims it's because he didn't cause the accident. Even though the crash reconstruction experts knew the wrecks couldn't have occurred the way he claimed, nor did any witnesses attest to a car pulling out from the side of the road. After six years of searching and fighting, the families finally got a slice of justice. Frederick Russell, for killing three people, was sentenced to 14 years. Wow. In April of 2015, Frederick Russell was 36 years old and after serving eight years of his 14-year sentence, was released. Of course he was. Again, thanks to a legal team that fought everything, including filing an appeal stating that there had been a warrant for searching Fred's body, but taking his blood should have required a separate warrant appealing that his time spent in jail in Ireland should apply to his U.S. sentence, and his good behavior while behind bars all allowed the man that killed three people to walk out. He served only two more years than what he was on the run for. Is there a charge for fleeing? Um, yes. So I don't know why he 
at the very least should have served the 14 years because it was like you were evading, you ran away, you missed your court dates, you uh, yeah, cost the marshals a lot of money. <laughs> so, and there's a multitude of reasons they would let him out early, but y- you think someone who flees is m- a potential risk to release yeah. early. And I think all of that comes back to his dad being who his dad is. Mm. After his release, Fred moved to California, where he was on parole for 18 months. Now, who knows? He has probably moved back to Ireland, and maybe he was able to create a family of his own with Hazel. The continued ripple effect of that June night is still felt by the victims' families and survivors. A sheriff sergeant had been working on the case, and the clues had taken him to Oregon. On his way back to Washington, he was struck by a drunk driver who nearly killed him. He was unable to work and has had to walk with canes after the wreck. He never would have been there if Fred, at the very least, hadn't run. Kara, who had survived the Cadillac, became a kindergarten teacher in Washington. The scars across her forehead and from her lip to her chin are the only reminders of that night. She feels grateful she has no memory of the accident or the days surrounding it. She lives her life with a metal pin in her pelvis, a pelvis that is always in pain. With the help of her family and physical therapy, she was able to return to school in the fall of 2001. After the accident, she likes to be behind the wheel if there's a two-lane road involved. And what might strike the biggest chord with you Gen Zers that are listening? She never went to the theater to see Shrek 2. I know that sounds like I'm making a joke or trying to be funny, but it's not that at all. Trauma like this can have lasting effects that you don't really think about. Do you really want to do something to someone to where they miss out on something as good as Shrek 2? Oh boy. I don't think so. Ryan Sorensen, who died in the crash, used to help his dad on his fishing boat in the summers when he came home from school. By the time the family found out about the accident the day after it happened, items from Ryan's off-campus home had already been stolen. Ryan had graduated a month earlier with a degree in criminal justice and was considering joining the Coast Guard. He hadn't joined just yet because he wanted to stay in town with his longtime girlfriend, Stacy Morrow. They died in the backseat of the car, holding each other in their arms. Stacy and Ryan had been dating for a while and were both very much in love. Stacy was 21 years old when she died. Originally from Milton, Washington, she was majoring in education. She graduated from Fife High School in 1997 with honors. For 16 years, she was a camper and counselor at Camp Kiwanalong, a nature-based camp program. Brandon Clements was 22 years old and from Topanish, Washington. His mother remarked how effortless it was for him to get people to laugh. He was a 4.0 student at Washington State, getting a degree in chemical engineering. Rich Morrow, Stacy's dad, has devoted his life to keeping others from experiencing the pain he has endured, so he speaks at schools and other events about the impact of drunk driving. Emily, looking at the evidence, Yes, of course, I take issue with the blood sample being lost and unable for retesting, but I just don't see much doubt in this case, and the running away only solidified his guilt to me. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I have to go back to the story from high school. I was in the car with my friend Jessica, and we, I don't, I don't know, I think we had like batting cage practice on one night a week, we would go and just practice for Oh, how funny. And so she... She was 
coming to pick me up, but she was kind of all flustered. I'm like, well, what happened? She goes, oh, I, I stopped to go get our other friend. And when she backed out, she ran into someone's car. And then she came to get me and I go, it's okay. Like we can figure this out. What we'll say is we went to Fred Meyer to go get Gatorade and somebody hit your car and your mom will never know. We'll be fine. And her mom knew enough about crash science that she's like the angle that that was at, blah, blah. She knew all this stuff. And she said, you hit someone's parked car. And they made us go to the person's house. Oh, my God. Ring the doorbell and tell them she hit their parked car. So even a rando person knows enough about that stuff to be able to figure it out. Imagine what someone who spent their life going to school to understand right. crash science. Yeah. So, no, I, I think it was cut and dry. Yeah, to kind of try to compete with that, to go, oh, no, 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 you're misreading it. I just went over right. here this way. And then, you know, the only plausible thing I could think is, okay, well, maybe at such a high impact, maybe someone else caused it. But I just think there's – they do that for their living. Like, yeah. they get it. But And then running on top of that, if you have a, a – family member who's in criminals like come on how how was that dad not like here's the best thing like whatever you do come to my house yeah and we'll get the legal team and we'll do a plea deal so it's just guilty 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 yeah now here's the thing though with drunk driving it's like the human side of me realizes people make mistakes and i think hopefully you don't hurt someone and you get caught and you learn your lesson and you never do it again. So I, you know, that appeals to that person, that part of me that I'm like, well, I feel bad that, you know, somebody not only killed people, ruined their own life, but you just got to own up to what you do. Like you, and we have to hold them accountable and make an example out of them because that's the only way we can stop other people from doing that stuff is to realize the greater impact, not just to the people that you ruin their lives forever, right. but to your own life. Mm-hmm. Do you really want to live with that? Yeah. And I talk, I, I talk about on Patreon, Mitch, my friend Mitch, uh-huh. who was hit by a drunk driver, like that impacts all of us. Mm-hmm. All of like you think about it all the time. So. And it's so often, I don't know what it is about drunk driving. I don't know if it's because of who it tends to be, which is like white guys, if that's like part of why it's not taken more seriously or something. And I... I don't know what the punishment should be, but it's like uh, the the guy that hit me and my dad when I was younger, you know, got out, couldn't even speak. And my dad found out later, like he'd been arrested so many times, like 14 times or something. That's for what it. really gets me. And it's like, are you just waiting till he kills someone? And then what? He gets eight years. This to me, you're choosing. I mean, this is like I brought a gun to the party and I didn't mean to shoot anyone, but I did have it loaded and I didn't have the safety on. I have real problems with that. Like we talk about, okay, first time offense, it's still pretty steep, the fees and Mm -hmm. everything and without killing someone, just getting caught. And then a second offense should be a removal of a license. I believe it is for like a few years. Um, But it's like, and what does that do? You know, three strikes should be out. Yeah. I have no tolerance for and I get that almost every person I know is like, oh, man, I used to do that all the time when I was younger. And it's just like that's we know too. we know too much now. We, we're too educated. We have the stats. It's been amazing, though. Um, I was reading an article that said in Houston, right when Uber came out in that year, decreased like 38 percent or something of, of traffic yeah, which, accidents, which is bonkers because like, guys, you could have called it. I mean, right? Like maybe but taxi ta- companies should have like pre done pre-orders. Yeah. But yeah, cities like Portland, it's like taxis are not 
common, you know. No, but I mean, so, before, yeah, before Uber, there were a lot of taxis. Yeah. You just had to call and wait. Yeah. But so it's like there are so there's just so many options now that anything of like, oh, I drove a little too. too it, I have no tolerance for that at all. It's just like also, we, we know well enough. College towns like one thing we just stayed were put. Right. <laughs> like, why do you need to drive over to the other college? <laughs> just sit down. The other thing for me that points to guilt is his going, going, going. Not his running away, but in the accidents. Oh, hitting one. Not his going away, but the accident itself. Yeah, where, you know, I saw that once in Vegas. It was like 2 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon, and this guy went down this two-lane road and just like a pinball, boop, 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 took out like eight, nine cars. That's when you know they're very drunk. Yeah. And then once this dude ended up in a ditch, he was still turning the key. Like, his car was totaled, and he was trying to get it to start. Like, that's how drunk he was. And that, to me, that, to me, the way... Oops, my bad. That was me. The way Fred keeps going and is like on the same, it's not, oh, and then the back of his car hit the front because he was out of control because Mm -hmm. this car pulled out in front of him. He was like a bulldozer. And that to me, more than a blood test or anything else, it's like, you didn't stop after you took out a Geo and a Cadillac. There's no cognitive function happening. They're literally on autopilot. Yeah. They just go uh the other thing you were talking about with uh the testing done and how the gravitational pull Mm -hmm. another thing that commonly happens with drunk people is you follow your eyes yeah so you're looking something draws your Mm -hmm. eyes attention your body's gonna follow it your Mm -hmm. hands are gonna follow it and the wheel's gonna turn yeah so yeah i mean just there's no reason to drive drunk and at the same time though it's like i get it if you're not close to it you don't really get that that alarm going off on these little like if you, you like do. if you haven't been affected by it yeah yeah it's it's less personal to you uh, until somebody close to you you know gets hit by a car and then the other thing is uh sometimes we're just not good at assessing what drunk driving means you're not necessarily yeah. drunk you mm-hmm. just have alcohol in your system you don't realize like how that changes your body uh, i know someone whose family member had been drinking the night before and the next day, I think, I don't know if they ran a stop sign or somebody else did, but uh. they got in a crash. Somebody died and they they didn't know that they had alcohol still in their system and wow. they ended up getting charged. Wow. And it's like, you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's like, even if you don't feel any effect, yeah. you, you could be ruining your own life and someone else's just mm-hmm. with the one... One running a, a stop sign. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much more That's, to it. We were watching, what was that movie, Josh? Shot Caller? Mm-hmm. So we were watching Shot Caller the other day. I was working, so I only caught blips of it, but it's this really well done movie. And besides showing like how horrible the prison system is, it is just this guy. It's a businessman, family man. He has a couple of glasses of wine at dinner. He runs a light because he's like distracted by his friend, but because of his blood alcohol content. So it's like, even in those moments where you're like, no, I feel fine. Yeah, I can do it. It's it. like if you've got something that's going to if something goes wrong, then it's on you and you go to right. prison for a long time. It could be anything. Why? It may not be someone's life at stake. Yeah. But if you rear end someone or mm-hmm. you cause a crash and you have blood alcohol. Yeah. You're the one that gets even if you had nothing to do with the crash. That's right. 
Drunk or otherwise impaired driving is completely, absolutely, 100% avoidable, especially these days. Going out and drinking doesn't make you a bad person, but if you choose your own needs over the safety of others, it does make you a selfish person. If you end up in a situation where you aren't sure if you should drive or not, please think of this story. Think of the families that would give anything for that seat at the table to be occupied again. For the survivors who feel the physical and emotional pain daily. No one wants to live with that kind of guilt or grief. So please call an Uber, call a Lyft, have a designated driver and buy them snacks. Call a friend, get a cab, catch a bus. Just please, please, please don't get behind the wheel. Even if you aren't sure, you'll feel better knowing you didn't risk it. All of this goes for any kind of impaired driving, so put that phone away too. That social media notification or that text message will still be there when you get to your destination. I'll leave you with some words from Rich Morrow, Stacy's dad. It does make you look at those that you have in your life. I refer to them as those you still get to hold in your arms rather than in your heart and realize how important it is to express your love and care for them. I think a lot of people walk around with that, holding it close and keeping it quiet. So foolish. I, I literally, when somebody tells me their favorite jelly is grape, I'm like, well, sorry. It was nice knowing you. Marionberry's because my favorite. I, oh, I oh, didn't good. think of Marionberry. And Blackberry. Yeah, grape is the worst jelly. It's, grape and is, I don't uh, like jelly. Apricot. Oh, I hate apricot. I like a jam. I don't like jelly. And then yeah. you know, occasionally I would give in to my English grandfather's request to eat the marmalade. <laughs> marmalade. Creo lady. Come on in here and eat grandpa's marmalade. <laughs> <laughs> The news footage on un- unsolved mysteries. Passenger Kara Eichelsdorfer. Eich- oh, fuck. So close. Eichelsdorfer. I don't think you need to say door. Yeah, I think you can just say Dorfer. Like door. Dorfer. Okay. Passenger Kara Eichelsdorfer. Oh, fuck. Kara, who had been in the passenger seat, <laughs> suffered. <laughs> Ma'am, I'm trying to make it work here because I'm so, giving up on the name. I know, but it just, you're so confident without the name. So it was so funny. I couldn't stop myself. Yeah, we need like a second between your takes like that. That was, that was great. Gulp. That's me swallowing the key. <laughs> Pooping out later. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy it. Like a Barbie doll head. What? What? You know, people that do that. Swallow them Barbie heads and poop them out. Why? It's a fetish. You're making that up. I'm not. Read it on the internet. Oh, well, if it's on the internet. I promise. So uh, parents were ER nurses and they talked about all the different things people would swallow. <sighs> and Barbie doll heads were incredibly popular. I'm sure you Alas. can take some guesses. Oh, did you want me to guess? No, I'm just saying. It's like, seems like I might yeah. know where this is going. I think I know. This Australia. was Australia. <laughs> There had already been incidents where they were sure they had the guy because they looked so remarkably similar. Similar. There was a David Carroll in my high school. Oh, fun. I think. (laughs) We're making it up. Who knows? Hold on. The big yawn. Sorry. The big yawn. (laughs) And what might strike the biggest chord with any of you Jeezy-ers? 
Ew. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 